following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning. So glad that you are here. If you're in the room, glad to know that there's a whole bunch of you that have joined us online this morning. If you have a Bible with you or on your device, grab it and let's go to Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two, I love to look out and see the glow of God's word on people's faces this morning. So navigate with me to Revelation two. Have you ever experienced this phenomenon in your family where you will sometimes say things or treat people in your family in ways that you would never let somebody outside of your family speak to or treat your family members. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're with somebody and they, they say something about your sister and you sort of bow up. You're like, you can't talk about my sister that way. All right, or somebody, somebody says something about your brother and, and, and you kind of get riled up. Like nobody talks about my family that way. That, that we will rise up to defend against some kind of threat from the outside, but then we'll turn around and talk about or treat members of our own family the same way, the way that we would never let somebody outside the family speak and treat them. My sister and I were four years apart, and we didn't fight a lot as kids growing up, but I came across a, a cute story uh, recently about two, two brothers who uh, got in a fight. And m- mom walks into the room, and the, the two boys are just, they're going at it. They're uh, wrestling around on the floor, and, and mom comes in and pulls them apart and breaks them up and said, who started this? And one little boy, without missing a beat, says, he hit back first. (laughs) Right? Sometimes what happens is that there can be things in our family that we uh, allow, that we tolerate, that that we wouldn't allow from the outside. Sometimes uh, we come together if we perceive any kind of threat from the outside, ignoring threats that might be within. This is actually what you see going on in the church we're going to look at today, the church at Pergamum. We are in the third week of a sermon series called This Beautiful Mess, where we're talking about the church, talking about the reality that the church is beautiful, but she's messy, and that in many ways we've all experienced some part of this, right? Whether we've spent our whole life in church, or, or maybe if you're relatively new to church, you've likely experienced the reality of the church at our best, Right, the church gathered together in passionate worship. The church sent into the world to help meet people's needs. The, the church mobilizing resources to bless people on the other side of the world. The, the church gathered together in intimate connection and, and community. The church at her best. But, but in many respects, we've all likely experienced the church at her not so best. The church at her worst. We've experienced those times of of disappointment, of, uh, of unmet expectations, those times of hurt, those experiences of failure, those times of compromise. And as we look to Revelation chapter two and three at these seven messages from Jesus to seven local churches scattered around ancient Asia Minor, what we see is the reality of this beautiful mess has been around from the beginning. That, uh, that even early on, we see glimpses of the church in all of her beauty and in all of her messiness. And we find that these messages from Jesus to those particular churches in that time and that place have deep resonance with our experience today. 
And I believe we're gonna see that as we look today at the church at Pergamon. Will you look with me at Revelation chapter two, beginning of verse 12. Jesus here speaking and he says, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So this is Jesus addressing the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was a very important ancient city. It was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. It was kind of the Washington, D.C. of its part of the world. It was a city of great importance, great influence, great affluence, a powerful city. And this city is about 65 miles north of Smyrna, where we looked at last week, and about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. This... Um, these letters addressed from Jesus to these churches kind of follow a cyclical pattern. So now we've gone north, 65 miles, to this city of Pergamum, this power city in the ancient world. And it's really interesting. In each of these messages from Jesus, he begins by reminding the church who he is. And here he reminds them who he is by drawing on this imagery. I'm the one with the sharp double-edged sword. Now, why might that imagery be particularly significant in Pergamum? Well, Pergamum was, as I mentioned, the, the capital, the Roman capital of Asia Minor at the time. And therefore, it would have been ruled over by a Roman governor who would actually carry a double-edged sword that was a symbol of his power, of his authority. It was a symbol of the power, the authority of the empire. The Pergamum was one of the few cities who was given by Rome the, the authority, the power of capital punishment. So this sword that the, that the governor carried was the representation of power, of authority, of life, of death. And Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamum in the seat of power in the ancient world and reminds them who he is, that ultimately I am the one who rules from heaven, that I am the ultimate power, the ultimate authority. And it's worth remembering that when this imagery of, of a sword, a double-edged sword associated with Jesus shows up in other places here in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament, oftentimes it's connected to the, the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Now that's a really odd image, right? We don't see very often battles fought with a soldier with a sword from his mouth. But this image is the idea of Jesus' word as the means through which he exercises his authority but he's reminding this church in the seat of Roman power that he's ultimately the authority over them. And he says to them, I know where you live. Now this, this fascinates me. So, so back at the, uh, the first address, the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. Last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna and he says, I know your affliction. And this week to the church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. I know your context. I know being faithful to me in that place is hard. He says, I know where you live, where, where Satan's throne is. Now, this is pretty interesting, right? I, I've been to some rough cities, but it's got to be a particularly rough city if Jesus says that's where Satan's throne is, right? That's a tough, that's a tough town. 
Now, scholars have actually debated what's the significance of this little idea of Satan's throne being in the city of Pergamum. Some have suggested that it may actually have some kind of reference or allusion to a literal place in the city. I came across a, uh, an organization called Onosynthesis. It's a group of archaeologists who have done 3D reconstructions of ancient Greek cities. And it's fascinating to look at the city of Pergamum. I want to show you what the uh, Acropolis, the, the upper part of the city, would have looked like in ancient Pergamum. Uh, this is the structure. This is the city. This is the heart of ancient Pergamum. And I want to draw your attention to four specific buildings that represent uh, possibilities of a physical reference to this idea of Satan's throne. The first one I want to show you there is the temple of Zeus, the god of gods in the Greek pantheon. This was one of the ancient wonders of the, of the world. Uh, second, you see just up the hill from there, the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. You come down the hill then by the theater here and you see the temple of Dionysus. Dionysus, and then finally you go up the hill, the top of the hill, the temple of Trajan, the Roman emperor. And scholars have wondered, could it be that one of these physical locations is actually the referent behind this idea of the throne of Satan? Or is there some sense in which taken collectively, they represent the place from which Satan actually is alive and well and ruling? Now, it's interesting to think about the significance of each of those temples. First, the temple of Zeus. Zeus in the Greek pantheon, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the ultimate power and authority in the universe. This is the seduction of power. Then you move up the hill to the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. The temple of Athena is actually surrounded by a massive library, second only in the ancient world to the library at Alexandria, this, this huge library surrounding the temple of Athena, the, the goddess of wisdom. That is the seduction of worldly wisdom. The seduction of power, the, the seduction of worldly wisdom. Then you move down the hill to the temple of Dionysus. Dionysus, the god of um, the grape harvest, the god of winemaking, the god of fertility. Dionysus was associated with the kind of moral laxity of the ancient world. In fact, the, the temple of Dionysus is ne right next to this massive amphitheater, and the theater was the place in the ancient world that was associated with pushing the boundaries of morality. This is the seduction of moral compromise. The seduction of power, the seduction of worldly wisdom, the seduction of moral compromise, and then finally, the top of the hill, the temple of Trajan, the Roman emperor. This is the seduction of political idolatry. The seduction of power, the seduction of worldly wisdom, the seduction of moral compromise, the seduction of political idolatry. It's a good thing that uh, the things that they faced in their day really have no parallel in ours, right? No. The things that were surrounding them, the temptations and allures that they faced, friends, I believe are precisely the same that we face. The temples in our day may look different, but we find ourselves surrounded by the seduction of power, particularly for us in our day. It's associated with the accumulation of wealth, the god Mammon, 
Jesus called it. The seduction of worldly wisdom that uh, seems more and more in our cultural moment that people find themselves kind of preoccupied with the idea of my truth. And don't misunderstand me. I think that that phrase can be very meaningful, helpful, just to point to the reality of a person's lived experience. But for the Christian, we have to remember that, that my truth, that my lived experience must always be governed by and guided by the word of God, the truth. The seduction of worldly wisdom. The seduction of moral compromise. We, like they, live in a world that is filled with the allure of pleasure. Pleasures that have the potential to draw us away from our affection, attention, and allegiance to God. And those pleasures are manifold in our world today. The seduction of moral compromise. And finally, the seduction of political idolatry, that we are living through a cultural moment in which many people of faith find themselves so drawn to the kind of poles of partisan politics that oftentimes their deepest sense of loyalty, allegiance, identity is found more in their political associations even than their faith in Christ. This is a temptation for all of us. Right, surrounded by the, the seduction of power, the seduction of worldly wisdom, the seduction of moral compromise, the seduction of political idolatry. Jesus says to them, I know where you live, but it's really important that we recognize what he says to them in the face of that. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And again, at the end of the passage that we read, he makes reference to your city where Satan lives. Jesus is calling his their attention to the reality. I know where you live. You live in a battle zone. But in this battle zone, it is a spiritual battle. To quote the movie, The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. That we live in a, in a time where it seems a little bit old-fashioned to talk about devils, to talk about Satan. And yet, if we don't recognize that there is an evil force at work in the world, then we will see our neighbors as our enemies. The people are not our problem. That Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but against powers and principalities. Our job in the midst of this battle zone, our job isn't to fight a culture war where our neighbors become our enemies. Our job is to fight a spiritual battle where we don't succumb to the pressures of individuals, ideologies, or institutions to draw us away from our allegiance to Christ that we find ourselves living in a battle zone, but it's a, a spiritual battle. And interestingly, what Christ says to them is that, that you have been faithful, that you um, have refused to give up your allegiance to me even in the midst of this great pressure from the outside, right? He, he says, um, you, have not, uh, you did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. One ancient uh, Christian tradition suggests that Antipas, Saint Antipas, he's referred to, Antipas was uh, 
was consecrated, ordained as bishop of Pergamum, and then was later executed, was martyred in the year 92 AD. Um, that tradition actually suggests that John himself uh, anointed, he, he consecrated uh, Antipas as the bishop of Pergamum. He's still celebrated within Eastern Orthodox Church uh, on April 11th, the, the day that commemorates his martyrdom. And interestingly enough, Jesus refers to Antipas here. He refers to them as my witness. And the word for witness there is actually the word uh, martus. It's the word from which we get our word martyr. Because the highest form of bearing witness to Jesus is laying down one's life in loyalty to him, pointing others to the truth that you've encountered in Christ. And we believe that Antipas is the first martyr of the church at Pergamum. And Jesus commends them, says, you didn't renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, even in the midst of this great pressure from the outside. But, and here we have a significant nevertheless, right? Look with me, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that, they, uh, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, some of you are hearing that and you're going, oh yeah, that's good, that's deep. <laughs> but I suspect most of us are going, Huh? What is he saying? He makes reference here to Balaam, to an Old Testament story found in Numbers 22 and following. Now, the story of Balaam is actually one that's really important for preachers. Because if you remember this story from Balaam, this is the instance where God speaks to Balaam through a donkey. And the reason this story is important for preachers is to remember, if God chooses to speak through you, it's not necessarily a compliment, Right? <laughs> That's sort of the PG version of the joke. The, I chose not to go with the PG-13 version, but you can sort of imagine what it might be, right? If God chooses to speak to you, it might not be so much of a compliment, right? He can speak through any donkey he chooses. <laughs> but, but what Jesus is referring to here isn't so much the, the time when, Jesus, when, when God speaks through the donkey to Balaam. He, he's referring to this story where Balak, the king of the Midianites, comes to um, to Balaam to try to hire him out, right, as a prophet for hire. Balaam is a, is a prophet of God, and Balak wants to, to hire him out to curse the people of Israel. Balak wants to come against the people, but he realizes that, that they have God on their side, that, that they're not, um, they're invulnerable with God on their side. And so he thinks to, to make them vulnerable, I can hire a prophet who can curse them. It's a kind of humorous story because it goes through sort of one cycle after another where Balak calls Balaam, offers him all kinds of wealth and power opportunity if he will just curse God's people. And Balaam says, well, let me check with God first. And every time he goes and he consults with God, God's response is basically the same each time. He says, I have blessed them. And if I have blessed them, you can't curse them. They are my blessed people. And so each time Balaam returns to Balak and says, sorry, no can do. But 
At some point in the story, Balaam has this kind of light bulb moment where he realizes that there is a greater threat to God's people than a curse from the outside. And that is compromise from within. That Balaam recognizes that God's people who with God on their side are somewhat invulnerable, but suddenly become vulnerable when they begin to make moral and theological compromises. And that this compromise from within is a much greater threat than any curse from without. And Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, you got some compromise within. Right? You have refused to renounce my faith when threatened with persecution, and yet you have tolerated compromise within, just like Balaam in the days of old. He says, you have some among you who teach the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, scholars aren't quite sure who the Nicolaitans are, but it seems um, a pretty common understanding, an agreed-upon understanding that, that the Nicolaitans were teaching some form of um, compromise is okay. And it seems likely that they were teaching that compromise is okay, particularly with respect to emperor worship. The teaching went something like this. God knows how hard it is for you to follow Jesus and refuse to worship the emperor. In the midst of this kind of empire, God knows, God understands how hard that is. And so he's really okay if you wanna worship Jesus and the emperor too. Compromise from within. And Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum, your great threat is not persecution from without. Your great threat is compromise within. He's saying your great threat isn't the big bad city out there. It's the way the big bad city has gotten in here. It's not the seduction of power out there. It's the seduction of power in here. It's not the seduction of worldly wisdom out there. It's the seduction of worldly wisdom in here. It's not the seduction of moral compromise out there. It's the seduction of moral compromise that, is, that has gotten in here. It's not the, the seduction of political idolatry out there. It's the way in which political idolatry has snuck in here. Your great threat isn't persecution from without. Your great threat is compromise from within. So look what Jesus says in response. Uh, There in verse 16. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Right? What, what a tragic reality that Jesus actually says, I'm gonna come against them. I'm gonna use the authority of my word to, to come against and, and to correct, to rebuke those who are tolerated in your midst. But, but he says to the church, he says, repent. And I realize when you hear that word, for, for some of us, we grew up in church environments that kind of used that word repent like a club, right? That sometimes it was used like a threat, like turn or burn, right? And so some of us hear that word repent and we almost have like a visceral reaction to it um, because of the way in which it's been wielded as a threat. 
But I think we misunderstand that we mishear if we hear the words of Jesus, repent as a threat rather than as an invitation. This is a word that is an invitation to do some introspection, to take a look at your life and to recognize the ways in which you've got off track, the ways in which you've gone the wrong way, you've trusted the wrong things. And Jesus is saying, repent. The the Greek word is metanoia, which means a change of mind, which I think calls forth from us just that idea of we have to look at our lives. We have to, 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 to take inventory of our lives. And to see the ways we've gotten off track and to change our thinking. But the, the concept goes back to the, the Hebrew word shuv, which literally means to turn. And, and so in their imagination, this word repent would have carried with it the idea of you're walking one way, one path. You are giving your allegiance, your attention, your affection in all the wrong ways. And Jesus is calling you to, to turn to turn from the way you've been going, to turn from what you've been doing, to turn from what you've been trusting, and to return, to turn to him, to trust in him. There was an ancient rabbi named Eliezer who said to his disciples, famously said to his disciples one day, he said to them, repent one day before you die. Right? Literally, one day, he says, repent one day before you die. Now, if you were one of Eliezer's disciples and you heard your rabbi say, repent one day before you die, what would you think? What what might you say in response? Rabbi, how do I know what day I'm gonna die? How, How do I know what day is one day before I die? And I think the rabbi would say, exactly. It could be tomorrow. Therefore, repent today. And the same is true tomorrow. Therefore, repent tomorrow too. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Martin Luther began the great Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. In the 16th century Reformation to change the history of the church, change the history of the Western world, began on the day that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church at Wittenberg. These 95 uh, claims that Luther put out there to have a theological debate around. The, The Reformation began with the 95 theses and the 95 theses began with thesis number one. Do you know what it was? All of life is Repentance. All of life is repentance. The repentance isn't something that you sort of do and you're done with. Repentance isn't something that you show up to a place at a time to to have confession before a priest and to to give your marching orders for what you need to do to, to get God's forgiveness. No, repentance is an ongoing reality that we're constantly examining ourselves before God, recognizing the way in which we've gone the wrong way. We have given our attention our affection and our allegiance to the wrong things. And we turn and return to Jesus. Repentance, therefore, is a way of life if we are truly to guard the integrity of our lives and our churches. And then watch what Jesus says by way of promise at the end, verse 17. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give that person 
a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, once again, I think we hear these words and we're like, thank you, Jesus, but, but what? To the, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. In the, in the Israelite tradition, there was this idea that some of the manna, the, the, the bread from heaven that was given by God to supply the people's needs in the wilderness, that some of that manna was actually put into the Ark of the Covenant and preserved. But it's a symbol that just represents that reality of God's life-giving manna from heaven, God's life-giving provision for his people. And Jesus said of himself, I am the bread life, that I will nurture and sustain my people both now and forever. And and then scholars debate the whole idea of this white stone. What's the significance of the white stone? And part, we're not entirely sure because there's a number of different uses that a white stone could be put to in the ancient world. But there's two that I think are particularly suggestive for us. One is a white stone would be used in a court, a court of law, representing acquittal, right? That a black stone would be used to to represent a, 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 a verdict of guilty. A white stone was a declaration of innocence. But another way the white stone was used in the ancient world was actually as an as a invitation that a, if you were invited to come to a banquet, you would be given this white stone and this was like your, your entry ticket into the banquet. And I think both of those images from the ancient world inform what Jesus is saying here. You have been acquitted, declared innocent, and invited to my banquet to feast with me forevermore. And on that white stone is given a new name, a new name that represents a new status given to you and a new intimacy available to you through what Jesus has done on your behalf. Friends, we, like they, live in a spiritual battleground, surrounded by the seduction of power, the seduction of worldly wisdom, the seduction of moral compromise, and the seduction of political idolatry. We, like they, live in a battleground. But our job is not to fight a culture war where neighbors become enemies, but to fight a spiritual battle where we don't succumb to the pressure of individuals, ideologies, or institutions that seek to pull us away from our allegiance to Christ. We, like they, must recognize that the threat isn't so much persecution as it is compromise. And we, like they, must hear the invitation of Jesus to repent, to turn from the direction that we've been going, to turn from what we've been trusting, to turn away from what we've been doing because guarding our integrity means all of life is repentance. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this word to this ancient church that is so timely for the church in North America today, timely for the church gathered here at 2435 Ken West Parkway. And God, we pray that you'd help us 
to examine our hearts, to examine our lives and see the ways that we need to turn and to return. And God, we come even before we come to partake of communion to examine ourselves. And Father, we thank you that we can know that uh, Jesus' call to repentance is not a threat, but an invitation because the truth that your word declares that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that great grace that you constantly offer us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to walk faithfully with our attention, our affection, and our allegiance to Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.